into season two now i talked to ross simonini he is a writer uh he's involved in many forms of art uh he also teaches he is also my friend this is a great conversation uh we talk a lot about cults so if that sounds uh exciting to you proceed uh you can always get in touch hi at stoner.co welcome ross simonini Great to be here. So you have been the um, interviews editor of The Believer for many years. Yeah. Uh, you have a new book out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I usually ask people to give like some sort of a like nutshell of their art, and I read about half of your book over the last 24 hours, and uh, this is going to be a tough one. But like when you meet someone on a plane and you're like, I'm writing this book, what do you tell them Like the book is like? I tell them that it's told in interviews. Yes. And that it chronicles the rise and fall of a system of thought. Yeah. And the figure behind that system of thought. It feels kind of timely just in that I feel like this is a year of um, cults. Oh, yeah. Uh, Yeah. Do you feel like it's come like in the same way that um, this is a totally like uneducated comment, but like. There's a bunch of stuff that I remember from the 1980s coming back, uh, like debates over political correctness would be one. And I just kind of remember cults having a bigger fascination in American life. Like we're seeing some like with the wild, wild uh, country, um, certain historical cults coming back to light. Uh, But also it, it just feels like maybe it's when the country is at its most like polar that cults seem to make the most sense. I think that sounds right. Yeah. Yeah. People are looking for some something concrete to latch their thinking onto so they don't have to just swim in confusion all the time. Yes. And I feel like um in talking about issues on this show that are on the periphery of psychedelia, we're always like at risk of like um like passing a cult along the road we're on the fringes of like what can become cults Mm -hmm. Um, while at the same time um, with the like weed legalization movement in America, also psychedelia is becoming very banal and and commercialized at the same time. Or Uh, or with the the Michael Pollan book. Sure. And this general institutionalization of psychedelics. Yeah. And the Silicon Valley sort of like a micro dose control your brain kind of stuff. It just feels like I can see why it like lends itself to fiction because it feels like a bunch of storylines all converging that I'm not sure exactly what they all have to do with each other other than I keep noticing them everywhere in the world. Yeah, I think it also cults allow for a kind of self-contained culture. Yes. And I think some people experiment with that by doing science fiction or, you know, by creating some sort of alternate history, which I also did in this. Yeah. And it, it's just a way of testing out an idea and seeing how it plays throughout, I think, a whole society. And cults are just these neat little isolated societies. And oftentimes they fail or maybe they don't fail, but they end, which I think a lot of cults seem to have that expiration date and maybe even if we weren't using the word cults it would it would be easier to talk about it but yeah organiz- i mean i think that like like narratives organizations uh 
uh, groupings of people, yeah. you know, bands. Bands is a great example. Because, like Rise and Fall is, is yeah. generally our narrative. We don't have the like rise and then happily run, like walk off into the sunset narrative. Exactly. In any like, of those um, groupings of people. That's a narrative a person can have, but I don't think things can ever really end happily for a group. Right. It It's always the band breaks up or the band uh, fails to continue but the idea that we just reach a natural stopping point, I think, is uncomfortable for people. And or the followers overwhelm the leader, or the followers like take a different direction upon the leader's death. Like, there's just there's no way everyone can just walk straight in one direction forever. Mm-hmm. And I, I really I enjoyed the book because it made me. I almost feel like the book gives the like the personal. Uh, what is the movement called within the book? The personality movement. Personality movement. Too much credit, and that it like has a unique vocabulary and set of ideas. And the great disappointment for me, whenever I've like peeled back the layers on a Scientology or even like the cult in, in Wild Wild Country, is that it's usually like quasi plagiarized sort of like a collage of previous ideas once you really sort of get behind the teachings or text of it. Um, it doesn't ever feel like a spontaneous issuance of culture. I wonder if any religions or systems of thought really are that novel, though. Yeah. I mean, you know, you look at Christianity and everybody just says it's some regurgitation of, you know, paganism and mm-hmm. yeah, and that that we're really just cycling through these perennial ideas over and over again with subtle variations. And we like to believe that it's fresh because there's some new set of language or a new face to go along with it. But in fact, it's just a new permutation of something that's inside of us as people that we need to keep moving forward. Um, all right, let's take it from the top uh, with you personally. When, when did you first smoke weed? The first time was with my best friend at the time, who is still a close friend and is my oldest friend, I think since the age of four or five. Wow. And he was a year older and therefore cooler. So I was 11 and he was 12. And he'd already had some experience with it. Yeah. And we went into his bedroom and smoked out of one of these little metal pipes. And then we just sat there in the dark and I didn't feel anything. And I tried to ask him some questions like about what I was supposed to be feeling. <laughs> he was just like, no, 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 just feel it. Just experience it. Just five, man, just five. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I just uh, sat there confused. And so that was my first experience with it. Um, where, where did you grow up? It, this was in, that was in San Rafael, California. So weed was not like a uh, strange item in the uh, the San Rafael world, I'm guessing. No, I think that was, that town is where the, uh, 420 was born. Oh, really? If the myth is true. So what is your interpretation of the, the San Rafael origins of 420? Okay, my interpretation is, is no, there's not, it's only interpretations okay. on the show. There's no objective truth. Uh, that students at San Rafael High, which was right down the street from me, yeah, and I think this was in the 60s or 70s, uh, would meet every day after school 
at 420 to get high. Yeah. And that was the extent of what I, I understood it to be. I'm going to give it a high ranking on the po- <laughs> the possible truthiness uh, scale. So uh, what was your relationship as a young person to marijuana? I knew it to be around and my parents did not smoke. Yeah. And they weren't a part of the hippie culture growing up. But that was around in, in Marin. You know, the, the members of the Grateful Dead lived in the area and we would see them driving around and their children went to our you know, schools. And so I was aware of that as like a worldview. And, and I was aware that, you know, marijuana was pretty central to that. So I guess I smoked pretty young. Yeah. Compared 11 to other seems people. pretty young. 11 is pretty young. If you go, if I showed you a picture of an 11 year old right now, you'd be like, don't give that kid any weed. <laughs> um you would be horrified yeah i'm sure i would i can tell you i can tell you as a parent of of a like around one year old now (laughs) if she's smoking weed in 10 years i'm gonna really regret this podcast well at that point it wasn't as if i dove into a life of yeah you know blunt smoking yeah i still had a lot of nintendo to occupy your time yeah I, i i just was confused about it at that point for about a year yeah then i tried it again in eighth grade and that time the marijuana was laced with something i think pcp we later learned and that was you know an unsettling experience to say the least i remember at one point looking down and seeing all the blood rushing through my veins and we went for a a walk this friend of mine, uh, we were at his house and just to get away from his parents, we went for a walk with the dogs. And I remember the experience was so overwhelming. I just looked at the leash and let go. And we watched the dogs run off into the woods, you know, oblivious. (laughs) And then I had to spend the next four hours, you know, looking for these dogs in the woods. Uh, It was pretty terrifying, but for whatever reason, I didn't stop. And I think another six months or so later, I had another experience. And that one was actually pretty positive. Like, when did you start getting into art, like doing art stuff? As far back as I can remember. I yeah. mean, I, drawing as early as I could draw, like everybody does. And then making a lot of short stories. Uh, and then actually, uh, filmmaking was really important to me. I had one of these camcorders and made hundreds of movies with friends. So those were the really important early art making experiences. And then I really started taking it seriously when I got into music around the age of 12. And that was when I thought of music and art more generally as, uh, you know, like a life what kind of musical milieu are we talking about? We're talking like late nineties, California, mm-hmm. early aughts. Who did you fantasize yourself as? Well, my teacher, my guitar teacher was a jazz head. Okay. So he really stamped that in, into me as well, that the jazz was the ultimate music and that to be the ultimate musician, you wanted to, you know, play like Pat Martino or Grant Green. And, so I spent that that first couple of years really following that. I feel like the like ethos of jazz 
is a dangerous worldview to expose a 15 year old. I guess this is kind of like what a whiplash is about, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the idea that artistic achievement is these people who've like lived in your lifetime and the connective thread amongst them all is like obsessive practice more so than like the joy of creation. Yeah. It's somehow come to be parallel to the classical music training experience for some reason. And I felt that kind of intensity and stress around it. Uh, And then in high school, I started playing in punk bands and that was a nice, you know, counterweight to jazz where, you know, the whole point was to know three chords and to not play, you know, quote, well, but to just have energy really. And, and, um, so I had these two strains going on for a while. And then eventually once I saw what the reality of contemporary jazz culture was like, I, uh, decided to stop. Uh, what did you get out of playing in punk bands? I loved the high energy of it the feeling of the shows, the community. It was it was mostly my community, you know, growing up that we would just go to the punk club on weekends. You know, we would often open for whatever band came through town. And even if we didn't, we'd just go there to see what was ever, you know, playing that night. And a lot of my friends have actually kept up with it and they're still... Still you know, riding in the punk scene? They're still in the punk scene. Yeah. Um, or it, it engaged with it in a way, and then I've I've kind of fallen off since high school. Have you fallen off the idea of scenes in general since high school? Hmm, it's a big question. Like you are involved in like a lot of stuff, like experimental art that does lead itself towards like a scene communalist worldview yet also i can sense in you that there is some hesitation towards that i can also sense that in the book that you wrote that you're not a believer per se um what like tell me about the history of yourself as like a a group member of that kind well i think you're right about the book It, it is fundamentally for me a an expression of the conflict i have between wanting to believe in larger you know, structures of, of belief and thought and and communities and also inherently being a kind of loner and a contrarian and not wanting to join anything. So that is definitely a through line in my life. And I think the variety of activities I do is a way of allowing me to step into communities but not feel overwhelmed by their ethos. Is that informed for you, um, since we come from a similar part of the world, of actually knowing people who grew up in more like commune-like settings and sort of having local... Like I uh, knew people who who grew up in uh, situations like that and it didn't end well for like the second generation at least. Like I would not raise a child. I might be like tempted by like parts of like living in a commune, but I would never raise a child in a commune unless I wanted them to like experiment a lot with meth. Um, (laughs) That divide for you between those two poles, um, where were you when you were playing in punk bands as a teen? Well, punk has that for sure. Yeah. Punk is militantly got its ethos, you know, and to nearly fascist extremes, to nearly fascist extremes, which is, uh, something they should take a look at. Uh, but 
again, with the organizations though, most organizations ultimately like tip towards like fascist control over time. Truly, which is why I, I never am able to, uh, go more than a few steps in. Yeah. I'm just curious. I, yeah. I like the idea of it, but the reality of it doesn't sit well with me. You've also been a part of a different kind of organization, which is like a literary organization and like a organizations that are dedicated to putting out art. Do you find any different, like, like how does the believer compare to a commune? <laughs> um, well, the believer recently changed hands. Oh, that's right. So the believer had been a group of editors working under the McSweeney's banner for many years. And many of those people stayed the same for that period, but it's recently moved to another state to um, Black Rock, Black, Black Mountain, Black Mountain Institute, which is just to say that it's a radically new magazine sure. in everything except for the design and the format. Yeah. So it, it makes it a bit impossible for it to have that commune quality, at least over the long term. But I think, you know, any uh any group of people working together yeah. become a little isolated and uh but I know no more so than anywhere else I've seen. And honestly, I've never worked in an office. Yeah. I never worked in the Believer office. I've never gone in anywhere. So I think for that sense of community to really permeate you, you have to you have to be there. So what have you been doing all these years not in an office? Or, or what's your life like now? Well, the thing I mostly have been doing is touring as yeah. a musician Yeah, over the years since I've been out of school. You're a member of New Villager. Yeah. Um, and you have some solo stuff out now too? I'm working on some solo stuff now. Okay. Uh, I've played with a few different bands. New Villager was one of them. We're still alive. ostensibly <laughs> alive. Um, and I, But I've played, I've been an instrumentalist for different bands and toured yeah. with them or sort of been a part of bands. Um, so that was what I was doing for a long time. And it was nice not going into the office because I could actually edit the magazine and do interviews on the road. And then in the last five years or so, I've stopped touring and focused more on visual art and writing at home activities that don't tax the body and force you to be awake at eight in the morning every day driving for nine hours what was your uh weed situation like while you were living on the road the road's uh, a lonely place the road is a lonely dark but exciting place and so many musicians do drugs because of that lonely darkness and because it's just hard on the body yeah and you just need some anesthesia you know you just yeah. need something that is going to help you get through it so whether it's drinking or weed anything and so yeah i did my you know weed use probably upticked a bit during those years but really most of my life i'd only been a weekend smoker up until around that time and there was some switch that went off in me and i decided you know what, I'm going to get serious about this weed stuff for a few years. 
and I and I did, and I kind of decided to form a deeper relationship with it. You know, like yeah. like how could I do daily activities? Hi. And I'd never really done that before. I was never the type in high school to, or, or even college to get high and go to class. Yeah, me neither. And I never really thought of it as something that I would integrate into my daily life. And then at a, at a certain point, I just decided that seemed seemed like a good idea. I mean, I have some uh, self-analysis uh, that I've done on why I decided to do that. What, what did you find? Uh, largely correlating with certain hardships in my life, like my mom dying oh, and... Okay. Uh, just a kind of loss of loss of that old innocence yeah. that happened around a certain age. And I just wanted to feel a little better, I think. Yeah. And it was just like a medicating choice. So I did that for a while where I, I kind of didn't necessarily smoke every day, but most days. And um and now I'm falling into some other peculiar habits with it. Well, uh, you live out in the country now? I live, yeah, in in the Redwoods, about an hour and a half north of the Bay Area. See, I would feel more comfortable with like um, my um, slight weed overconsumption if I was like amidst Redwoods yeah. in like a natural area. There's something just kind of gross about it in New York. It's just kind of grimy. It's funny you say that because I've been in California for the last nine months. And then now I'm out in New York for the, the season to yep. teach a class. And I had been smoking pretty regularly while I was there. And as soon as I got here, I hung out with some friends and smoked and it just didn't have the same effect. It, yeah. it, maybe it's something like you're saying about the, the grossness, the air quality, but just mentally it didn't do the same thing for me. So uh, immediately I just didn't cut it out completely. But I, um, it's not like the tool it is out there in California. Yeah, I sometimes want to tell people that that kind of a change might be a lot more profound than the change between like a sativa and indica weed. Like, like changing your urban environment really is is pretty profound. It's a little akin to I don't know if you felt this um, when you were uh, touring that like, you know, you can go into two different cities, both a rock club of relatively the same size play relatively the same show and one night it can be like that was the most like joyous incredible expression another night it was like that was a really bad vibe that was terrible i don't know it's kind of like i don't like what was that like what was the difference between those two cities where people shooting dirty looks it's hard to put your finger on but you can feel uh, an overall vibe of a place in that way yeah um although i would also say that i've been in Lots of situations where different members of the band absolutely totally disagree on whether the vibe was good or bad. Much also like the sativa indica divide, I think there's a like powerful sense of placebo in all of this. Mm -hmm. It could be internal too, right? Yeah. You know, your stomach could be feeling off or whatever. And it always happens that after the terrible shows, people come up to you and just gush about how wonderful it was. And you just have there's an impossible kind of divide between where how you feel and how they feel and uh you can just sort of smile and nod i mean that is that part of like what attracts you to a more solitary living is just um you can always sort of be on the same page as yourself but the more external factors uh you add in 
the greater chance that there will be some divide between you and the person you're with or the place you're with or the project, the organization? Mm. I think I moved just because of the grossness you were talking about. Yeah. That it was, it's not that it's literally gross because I love New York and I still want to come back and I'm sort of living bi-coastally in a way right now. Yeah. It's, but it's largely the ratio. It's, it's about how much time you spend here because, you know, there's, I think it's wonderful up until a certain point and then, at a, and then there's a moment when it just switches on you and you're just overwhelmed. And I think I'm a particularly sensitive person too, yeah. to everything from sound and smell to, you know, socializing. So yeah, the, the country just allows me to, uh, yeah, I guess what you were saying, feel even keeled. There's less to throw you off throughout the day. And I just fundamentally love being around the redwoods and we live by a river. It's kind of paradise. All right. So you got to live the dream that I was denied uh, and that you stayed in California as an adult and saw um, your state legalize marijuana. So has that changed anything for you? Like where, where do you do your shopping? Well, I was out here for a decade and then I came back like a few months before it was legalized. Yeah. You so, came back you came back during the like um like strip mall doctor give you a card era. Exactly. Yes, yes. which is a very important cultural era in in California marijuana history that I don't think should be overlooked now that it's like unnecessary that we set up an entire industry of fake doctors in fake offices to write fake prescriptions. Yeah. And um like it's always important for me to remember that America will allow, will will do something like we'll that. find a way. Yeah, America will create a fake industry to do something fake rather than just say, um, you know, send a self-addressed envelope and we'll send you a weed card. Yeah. They sent everyone to a series of strip malls yeah. to, to execute that. Sorry, I cut you off. This is a good reason to be patriotic. I think. Yes, um, but in terms of the new, the brave new world that's going on out there, one of the things that's blown my mind is all the new forms that cannabis has taken. So you you go into these dispensaries now, and for one thing, they feel like you're walking to an Apple store, a lot of them. You know, it's the branding around yeah. cannabis is becoming very sleek. Which itself is kind of a dated idea. I almost feel like, I feel like that's like weed people trying to like class it up, but they're like seven years too late aesthetically i think so but at the same time it's working well i mean would you you'd rather go in like a uh you'd rather go into a a dated apple store than like the kinds of places that used to sell weed which were weird like the same offices that could become a like prescription place just like a strange commercial space that someone put a desk up on and sold weed at or or even like gun shops, a lot of yes. them felt like like you yes. walk through this weird the buzzer. Yeah, the buzzer, the dark hallway. Yeah, um, I didn't love that. But now, yeah, you walk into these Apple like stores, and the variety of of methods of consumption. I mean, there's. Uh, I've recently tried transdermal weed. That's like the patch. There are patches, or you can just get a lotion that you rub on. Oh, okay. And some, how'd that work out? Some of it's 
non-psychoactive and some of it's very psychoactive. And it goes immediately into your blood. So it doesn't really like food. It wouldn't, you know, have to um, go through your liver and it wouldn't have to go through your lungs. So it's just, it's quite quick. It's I think five minutes and it's the same. There are these sublinguals too that you just put oh, in your right, yeah, tongue. Okay, I've heard about those. Yeah. And the high is a different quality. I'm still trying to get my head around it. Um, but it's all part of, I think, this movement toward a gradual way of, of a approaching highness. You know, it's, it's, it's sustainable. Yes. Where it's about taking small amounts throughout the day or just once a day. And it's not about getting blazed. And all of the products tend to be divided into very small doses so that it's really encouraging that kind of incremental use. Um, but then, of course, they have, you know, 45 different kinds of flour on the yep. wall, too. And you can smell each one and they'll list all the terpenes. And that's that's the one thing, actually, that's becoming all the rage out there is the terpene talk. People, yeah. Everybody seems to have suddenly hopped onto the terpene bandwagon. There's no such thing as connoisseurship until the market has its own um, argot and not pseudoscience, but its own uh, taxonomies within it. Because otherwise you're just like, that's that super kind bud. Like it's super strong. And it's like, I feel like people pretty quickly exhausted the idea that like higher and higher THC would was desirable you know there's just some sort of a, a limit here where it's just like i'm not interested in you making the weed any stronger and then you have to keep breaking these things down into subcategories otherwise there wouldn't be 45 different products for sale or at least 45 that you could say anything differentiated about do you do you find any of that like compelling does it has it um up your experience at all it has yeah i think I think that is pretty significant. I didn't used to. I mean, and it's funny coming back to New York and it just becomes weed again. You know, like you just buy it and it's just like, here's some weed. Whereas, Absolutely. You know, and, and there's something refreshing about that, but you really can fine tune your experience. And I've only discovered this recently in the last year since it became legal, but you really can, you know, find find one that's kind of suited to the kind of mental state you want to achieve. And I have friends who didn't used to smoke weed at all because it made them anxious. And with the legalization now, they've been able to actually find strains that that they're enjoying and they can smoke weed now. And those um, strains are intended for an effect like that. Like this is something that you would walk into like a bud tender and say like, hey, I've had trouble with anxiety. What would you recommend? Exactly. Um, same with sleep. Same with creativity, all, all of these things. Um, and I know quite a few people who who were uh, kind of adverse to it because of the, you know, the wild variations that you would get from dealers and having bad experiences. And now it's you can be very consistent, um, which, you know, is good. It takes away some of that uh, that nice outlaw quality of it. Yeah. But I think a lot of people are now smoking more also because they don't feel that paranoia about doing something illegal. I think that's a huge, huge part of it. Yeah. I do actually believe that in the future, people won't be like ordering like a double like lemon terpene bar. They'll probably just have some sort of like 
single vape that everyone uses, but that vape will have like benefited from all of these sciences and all of these experiences out in the redwoods. And the other thing is, the, at least the store that, that I've been to, it's all organic or yep. biodynamic. And that's refreshing because I've heard pretty horrific stories about the kinds of chemicals that are on, you know, marijuana a lot of the times. And how can that not affect the experience or your health in some way? You know, you're, you're either breathing like, you know, maybe some pesticides into your lungs. I imagine that's. Yeah, there's, I'm anecdotally, it feels like the severity of like pesticides when smoking them, as opposed to on like non-organic produce. I just sort of anecdotally believe that's like, seems more bad. Like you're like ingesting this in a smoke form. You're lighting it on fire. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's some problems there for sure. Yeah. But I, I'm, I feel better about it just knowing that, that it's, that people are now accountable for yeah. how, how it's grown. And I mean, but to be honest, like where I am, you don't need to go to the shops because everybody grows weed. I yeah. mean, it's, it's essentially like the weed capital and everybody just shares mason jars filled with weed for free you know they'll just bring it over for dinner because it's just in abundance and um i go to the shops more just out of curiosity you yeah know, how is this culture developing and what are the aesthetics of it and and it's interesting to like scientifically experiment with the extremely specific strains which sometimes i find honestly no difference in but but sometimes I find huge differences. I think I'm more excited about the homebrew future than the retail future. Like I'm excited about everyone like growing their own weed and you go to someone's house and they're like, you're like, Oh yeah, I like going to his house. We get to smoke that weird stringy weed. He grows, you know, in the same way that like a dude who wants you to try his like double espresso stout when you go over to their house, dude or woman. It's so easy. Like, I'm watching a friend grow some plants right now. Yeah. You can grow, I think, seven legally there. And that is a, so much. I mean, I'm not a person who 14 smokes. 14 if you're in a relationship. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and I'm, I'm, I don't smoke, you know, 10 joints a day. I'm, I'm not that kind of a smoker. Um, I smoke very tiny amounts. And the amount that like one plant produces, I think it's usually a pound. Yeah. I mean, that would be, one plant alone would be enough for me for a year i think that's a i think that's a pretty like uh green thummy yeah uh, maybe. single plant but sure yeah i mean even if it grows uh Half two two ounces yeah. like and is like almost dead still yeah. like a lot of weed if you have six plants um, yeah and so if you have seven plants you can really just be you know bathing in it handing it out to people <laughs> i know people who have been making um green juices where you just juice the entire plant Really, and you don't get high off of it, but it's um, supposed to be incredibly high in nutrients. And uh, I think some people are using it for, you know, uh, healing from various illnesses. Um, and then, well, then there's the questions with that. Like, this is some wild processing we're doing to a plant. You oh know? yeah. And what is that doing? That's. Um, I think that actually is. If there's one thing, this era of weed gives me a certain pause. It's the like intense THCification of weed where like part of the reason I think 
maybe you and I are both comfortable with weed and that we might be uncomfortable with certain other drug experiences, at least on like a daily basis is like, this is a plant you can grow it in your garden. Like it's natural. But when you've bred it like in a lab to the very edge of that, like at what point does it cease to be a natural thing? Even though it still grows in the ground, it's been like, uh, bred so selectively to such a wide. It's like one of those dogs that can like barely breathe. It's where we've gotten with a lot of the other plants that we eat as yeah. well. I mean, if yeah. you look at their, um, you know, their their wild heritage varieties of plants, you know, like bananas are like blackened with seeds. You know, like we've just like radically changed plants. So yeah, we will probably become that, unfortunately. But the funny thing I've learned, too, is as people have been growing their own in California and I've tried some friends varieties, they're very loose and it's not yeah. it's not that like tight no, nug or whatever. Well, yeah, people listening should know this who have never like been exposed to like like a home grow under the sun. It does not look at all like what like a dealer brings to your house. Yeah, it looks like a, a bunch of loose little fragments. It's like and, farmer's market produce. Yeah. Kind of. But and, like not the good farmer's market produce, the like leftovers kind of stragglers. Yeah. yeah, it's not pretty. But then I tried some and it's strong. Like it's, yeah. I didn't find that that there was some wild variation between these like purple crystal varieties and this just like, you know, dried out weedy looking thing. You know, it, it, it felt similar. So uh, I'm not sure. I don't really know. I think... Maybe it's a um, economical thing too, with yeah. just having you know bud that's that's weighs more and is tighter. Well, the it, scragglers are at the farmers market are probably just as good as like you know glistening produce. They're just they're not saleable in the same way. Like yeah. you can only really sell the very like finest looking of the finest looking. I think as like a future, you know, people talk about like, well, will small farmers still be able to stay in business? The best future for weed would be if it becomes prohibitively expensive to sell it to the point where it's way easier to grow it. And like anyone who has even like the most passing interest in growing it ends up growing it. Like that's, that's the only good outcome here, I feel like. And it's an unlikely outcome, but it's possible. Yeah. I, and it's not like uh, growing herbs or growing vegetables. It seems like you can grow one plant. You don't have to do much. I mean, yeah. it doesn't require tending. It's like, it's like a cat. Yeah. It, you and, you got to yeah. make sure it's still alive. And then you have weed for years, probably, you know, as long as you can store it. And, and I guess there's, I've never dealt with this, but the hassle of, you know, clipping it and, and yeah. drying it. Well, it's like any hobby, like homebrewing or anything. Like you are like, that looks fun. And it's like $1,200 later and your entire garage later. It's like, wow, that was more involved than I like thought. There's like a, 10 pounds of weed hanging upside down from the ceiling. It's extremely smell. Like, you know, farming is not easy. I, I know that you, um, you know, you live in a more farming area. It's like, People think that, you know, it's it's probably easy to like grow a very small amount scraggly, but like anything with any kind of volume, you're really talking about like it's a job to grow a bunch of weed. Yeah, I think it, uh, I don't know, you know, the, the time versus money kind yeah. of input output of it, but 
I imagine not, and you know, you're not in the end saving that much time. It's just sort of the joy of it. Has has the? I mean, I know the economy has really crashed in terms of like how much a pound of weed in weed country is worth at dispensaries. Have you noticed anything locally? Considering you know, so many people have been making a living doing this kind of stuff. Does it feel like um, the economy is falling apart? Definitely not. I. Th- from the people I've spoken to, and I don't know that many yeah. weed farmers, I just casually know a few. Um, it seems like the problem for them is the the fuzzy legal areas that that yeah. are emerging, and the, you know there are all these loopholes, and nobody's exactly sure what's going on at the moment. So actually, I've noticed dispensaries every few months at this point are having to clear out their entire product. And they'll they'll have some crazy sale, you know, just to liquidate because some new law is passed that all weed has to now be stored in this kind of container or now it all has to have this kind of label on it. Um, so things are just changing really rapidly. And I think people are just trying to figure out how to hang on. All right, at the end of the show, uh, I like to ask everyone the same questions. This segment is called uh, Peak Experiences. Um, so I think you alluded a little bit to this already, but I want to like drill in specifically. Um, like, what is your weed ritual? What's your, like, not even necessarily like an everyday thing, but like at its most elevated, what, what would be, you have like a free night out in the country, nothing to do, you really want to get into it. Uh, joint, uh, vape, sativa, indica. What What's your preference? I like a nice afternoon, late afternoon joint in the studio by myself. And I have no plans. It's just a, you know, uh, vast open landscape before me. I can do whatever I want. Um, I love that feeling. Do you care what's inside that joint or are you like, surprise me, like the greatest, the greatest thing that could be in that joint is whatever's in that joint? I am becoming increasingly sensitive to the different strains. So more and more, I would say yes, that I am looking for a certain kind of experience, which I'd probably describe as energetic, you know, uh, and euphoric Hmm. yeah does that energetic euphoria overlap with anxiety and paranoia for you at all like is there too energetic on the energetic scale or are you just like give me the mountain dew fire me up i don't yeah i I tend to not go for the straight sativa Hmm. you know the coke weed i i i like um the hybrids that they sell okay it feels a little bit more balanced a little do you have a preference in that terpene smell arena? I'm figuring it out. I don't understand it yet. Yeah. But I what I do understand is that there are certain terpenes like um, pinene or mm-hmm. limonene yep. that when you smell them, they make you feel a little bit more alert and a little bit more engaged. And, and that you know, the same is true when smoking them. And that's, I really do like that. I, I like the way that weed creates a, a kind of focus that also is mobile. 
So you'll get focused on one thing and that you'll easily be distracted into something else and then become very focused on that. And it'll, for me at least, and, and it'll be a series of moments of focus. Yeah. And uh, that really suits the way that I work, which is moving from task to task all day long and, um, you know, liking the variety. You strike me as a person who um, likes a set of instructions. I find that you gravitate towards art um, somewhat in the performance art mode where it's like, do this, then do this, then do that. Like, and just the way that you described that ideal experience was almost like a set of instructions like that. It's like, like in the afternoon, one joint, like alone in the studio, how does setting yourself on sort of intentional courses like that, like, um, influence your artistic and marijuana experience? I think you're right. It's funny that you say that because I, I think that is true. And I also think that I am fundamentally rebellious. So I'll set up a, a system or, or some sort of rule. Yeah. And then I'll immediately, you know, push against that and rebel against it. Um, but it, I, I fully work that way. You're right. Um, I recently have been making a lot of uh, drawings where I use all four limbs and I, there's no way I could have come up with a like better example of what I just described than I've recently been making drawings <laughs> with all four limbs <laughs> and I'll, I'll put a large paper on the wall or a canvas yeah. and I'll create a set of rules as I'm, as I'm making the work, you know, um, for instance, I'll use my right foot and try to find the center of my body and make a mark. Or I'll use my left hand and try to make a mark from the highest point of my reach to the lowest. And I'll usually follow that set of instructions for a while until, yeah, I'd start to rebel and, uh, and just realize that, that that kind of restriction is a good place to start, but not necessarily good to remain too stringent toward. I think the reason I thought of that was I, uh, I read an article that you wrote that was about interrogating your own sense of taste, um, where you basically for a period immersed yourself entirely in musical genres that you had previously thought that you disliked artistic formats, uh, across the board. Um, People too. People too. Yeah, made your life based on the things that you that your taste told you that you did not like. And in the sidebar for this uh, article was, I believe, a performance artist's uh, instructions from the 1960s. I want to say 70s. Yeah, Lee Lozano. Lee Lozano. That was so. The first piece described is a piece about smoking weed. Paraphrase for people uh, what the instructions are about. Lee Lozano, she made two pieces, one called Grass Piece and one called No Grass Piece. And the Grass Piece, I can't remember the exact restrictions she put on herself, but it was about being high nonstop. She was basically like, get a bunch of weed and like smoke it all as fast as you can. Yeah. And Which this being the 60s, the a bunch of weed sounds like it was like a pound of weed. Yeah. And probably, you know, low grade. Yeah. But she wanted to be stoned nonstop for, uh, I think, um, 33 days, 33 I think days. she said. Yeah. But she didn't, 
at the beginning know that it would be 33 days. She knew it would be one giant pile of weed. And then she would describe her experiences going through life. Yeah. And then immediately after that, she did No Grass Peace, where she stopped cold turkey and yeah. described the effects of... But life. No Grass Peace is... I think No Grass Peace is like way better than Grass Peace, because in the middle of No Grass Peace, she's like... This person came over and he had a bunch of weed and I was like, what, am I not going to smoke this weed? So I smoked some weed. Like, no grass piece falls apart like halfway through and she just starts smoking weed again. Yeah. She, but I mean, she's... Uh, she's not still alive, is she? She is not. Because I would I would love to hear if someone on the show give a firsthand account of grass piece. Do, do you think we could get an artist to do grass piece? I'm sure. Yeah. she She's done these pieces. I mean, she died essentially doing two of her pieces. One was a piece where she stopped speaking to other women for the rest of her life, um, many years, decades. And then another one was called Dropout Piece, where she decided to drop out of culture, especially the art world. Yeah. And she started those pieces decades before her death and continued both of them. I mean, supposedly she wouldn't speak to her own mother. She wouldn't speak to nurses who were tending to her as she was dying. So... It's funny that she couldn't keep up with no grass piece when Look, she had I struggled with the no grass piece myself. <laughs> Intense willpower and yet just saying no to a joint is impossible. Um, wow, that's fascinating. I mean, it's funny because I feel like grass piece is the like most frivolous possible manifestation of like a performance art instructions. Yet this is clearly a person who is on the path to doing the most extreme possible instructions. I'm never totally like been able to wrap my head around like living that way what what do you take from someone like that's life it's been a model for me in a lot of ways i tend to set up situations and let them play out with weed for example i will make sure that i spend three to four months every year not smoking it interesting and i do the same with caffeine i just like to make sure that i don't need something like that and that it is helping me rather than controlling me but it's also natural it's it is partly a move of willpower but i find every year at a certain point I, it just stops having the same effect and like i said when i came out here recently the um the effect changed and i find that seasonally the effect changes a bit too and it's often when it starts getting into the winter months I just seem to not want it. Is it hard to taper off after, you know, using it regularly for the past eight months? It's not. It really is just, uh, I wait till I feel it. I don't, I yeah. don't, I don't try to like place a restriction. It's not on your calendar. Yeah, exactly. And I, but I try to make sure that it happens every year at some point, but it also just happens organically. Um, and that's how a lot of these experiments I do on myself tend to work. I, want to do something anyway so i just make a decision about doing it uh rather than letting it happen here and there you know it's it's easier to actually just understand results in life if you create distinct periods you know if you kind of stop smoking weed it's hard to tell exactly how your life has been affected by that but if you distinctly stop one day and start another day you really like can so, like in the same experimental mode that we've been talking about. What is a uh, place that is special to you anywhere in the world? 
a place you've come back to over time or that you have strong memories? There's a redwood grove called Armstrong Woods that is just down the street from where we now live. And I would say that that place is what made us move to that area, the, the Russian River area, because it feels wonderful to be in there. And even now we go there five days a week and take a walk in the woods. It's all old growth redwoods. You know, some of them are 1800 years old and there's something about the smell and the, the actual air quality in there that it's comparable to drinking a cup of coffee or not that I drink coffee, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's thick, it's thick. And it's, and if you go there around four o'clock in the afternoon, when you're having that sort of lag in energy, it peps you right up. It, you walk out there. I always feel better when I come out of there. Um, there's this Japanese concept called forest bathing. Oh, I've heard, I've heard that. And doctors will actually prescribe people to go walk around a forest, maybe because of the oxygen levels, maybe just as a stress I think it's probably that same like weed, New York, California vibes thing. Yeah. It probably explains like forest bathing also. Yeah. It's the vibe. Yeah, just the vibe. I just love the vibe of the Redwoods. Can you recommend a uh, stoned viewing experience, movie or TV? So many. I know, it's tough. It's very tough. I'm going to go for Twin Peaks The Return, which I uh, recently rewatched. And I think is a masterpiece. There's some harmony between the way you described uh, the organist and Twin Peaks, the return of um, being dropped into a place that you're uncertain where you are and the entire experience is basically trying to locate yourself within it. A hundred percent. I think that I love to be confused. I, I think confusion is one of those moments in life that allows you to feel like a baby again. It allows you to rediscover your senses and your body. I love that feeling. And actually, I, th I think weed is pretty expert at giving you that feeling. You know, when you're working on a piece of music or you're working on writing, nothing refreshes you like smoking a joint and then looking at it again. It's It, it kind of scrambles your brain a little bit and allows you to have that freshness. And I think that uh, disorientation does that in art as well. Can you recommend a snack? Recently I've been doing this beverage where I, uh, I take some seltzer and then in, rather than using ice cubes, I use, <laughs> I use um, frozen fruit and I like it because it gives, you know, you get some fruity seltzer water at mm. first. And then once you're done with the water, you have this fruit that's all now been, uh, you know, defrosted. And then you get to eat the fruit. Ooh, wow. I think this is like a, something, a, a sellable product. It's like, how, <laughs> it's like it's stored, maybe it's like in two units and you like break the seal and yeah. then mix up or something. It's it sounds delicious. For the summer, it's, it's ideal. What kind of, what's your like go-to fruit in, in your fruit seltzer? 
I love the frozen blueberries. There's something about blueberries. I think are the best frozen fruit. Mm-hmm. I used to, I like just like to eat a frozen blueberry. Yeah. So you live on the legal end of the divide, although you are visiting this semester. I'm wondering if you have a prediction about when we will see national legalization in America. It seems so soon to me. I mean, maybe it's because of where I live, but I would guess within a decade easily. Um, And maybe it won't be federally mandated. Maybe it will just be that all states or most states uh, have made it legal, but it just feels so easy and natural where I am. And once it's happened, it feels a little ridiculous yeah. that there's been, that I spent most of my life hiding, smoking, and that there's all this paranoia and stress about it. I, I think we're going to look back at it in the way we see like prohibition now or something as this peculiar moment in history when you know, we decided to make it illegal and I'm sure we'll say something about where our society has been at these, this last uh, century. What's uh, one thing you are looking forward to in the uh, expanse of the rest of your life? I'm looking forward to a cooling of my ambition. Mm. I, I think uh, people often talk about, you know, uh, starting life again at 40 or this feeling in middle age of caring less what people think and your ego mellowing out a little. That sounds nice to me. Yeah. I just, I, I've loved this period of life where I've sort of been writing my energy and, and always following, uh, always following the ambition, but it uh, it's a little draining as well, and I and I, I'm excited by the idea that you can be alive without that, and you can just relax into uh, the experience going on. It comes down to that self-containment thing, ultimately, right? That as long as you have these like ego needs, you're never going to be truly self-contained because the ego is never going to like um, you know satisfy itself. Of course, yeah. Um, Ross, uh, where can people find your book if they want to pick it up? Tell, tell us the title and the publisher again. Uh, the book is called The Book of Formation. The publisher is Melville House. You can buy it anywhere you buy books. Anywhere you buy books. Your local bookstore. That's where you can buy it. Um, thank you so much for this interview. Thank you. It was wonderful. Stoner is edited by Justine Dom, who also helps produce the show. I am your host, Aaron Lamry. You can always get in touch with me, hi at stoner.co. Always looking for sponsors, always looking for recommendations of guests. Uh, See you next week.